Please be seated. I spent, as you, most of you know, uh, 30 years in the Air Force, and in my career it was common for a general, like a four-star general, to come visit your base, the place where you worked, or maybe in one case, the Secretary of the Air Force came to visit. And you would kind of enter into this a major cleanup exercise in before the two weeks of the visit. You'd pave over the poor portions of road, you'd put new facades on old buildings, get broken equipment out of, the, out of eyesight, and make sure that everything looked nice and welcoming. And um, it was often referred to as painting the brown grass green which I don't doubt happened in some parts of uh, the deserts, to make this place look great because the sense of a coming authority reminded you of the work that had not been done. And so I offer this as a fitting analogy for the season of Advent that we enter into today. These four weeks before Christmas, the Lord has not come, but he has promised to come. And so Advent's a time when the church orders its life in preparation for the visit of the great king. And as we enter in as a community to this time, I want to bring before us three uh, recommendations, three practices and themes to carry us together over these next four weeks, themes that arise in our readings. And the first is this, gathering. Gathering. This reading from Isaiah today, you see this picture. The nations of the earth flow to the mountain of God, that mountain that is raised up above the hills. Now it will help us here to, um, to recognize the fact that in the Old Testament that we're reading from in Isaiah, there are a couple of different parallel narratives. You may recognize them, they may confuse you. One of them is that the Lord is coming back to judge the nations and to raise up Israel. God will put them down. He will destroy them. He will wipe out Israel's enemies and bring relief to Israel. And all along in the Old Testament, there is a parallel narrative that God will gather the nations with Israel to worship him. One of them judgment and one of gathering and uniting the nations with Israel. Psalm 148, and all the nations raise their voices, kings and princes, both young men and maidens, this kind of universal image. And the Old Testament makes no effort to resolve these two different lines of thought. And so you perhaps can sympathize with these Jewish communities when Jesus arrived on the scene, and some very much expected him to come and put Rome down. For there was surely an expectation of something like that in the prophets and in the Psalms. And instead, what Jesus does is takes up the vision of the welcoming of the nations to himself, putting off till a future day that final judgment. It's a moment of grace. It's a moment of open-armed welcome that Christ brings to the world. Come and gather at the high mountain of God. Gathering. It is a beautiful scene, isn't it? Nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and pruning hooks. There is unity that is found in gathering before the Lord. 
a peace that happens. God judges between the nations. There's an expectation that in this Lord, enemies may become friends. And I do love this scene. It's like Psalm 148, that we join our voices. The people say, come, let us go that he may teach us his ways. And I want to remind us how significant it is when we sing together in church and in union. We are anticipating, we are praying for the uniting of voices in song before the Lord as he comes. The reminder here with gathering, I think, should compel us and should refresh that calling to be evangelists in the world. Evangelical, before it kind of ran through um, the meat grinder of the last several decades, had this beautiful sense that's hard to render in another way. It means to be a bearer of good news. To be those on the hillside saying, come, gather with us before the Lord. So I call us to this this week. We live in a fairly secular part of the world in a secular country. Who have you given and shown the light of the Lord? Whom, to whom have you said, gather with me? I believe in Jesus, that one around whom alone the nations will gather in peace. The one in whom alone is the hope for justice, is the hope for unity and for healing. We're called back again to tell our neighbor the good news of the world. Gathering. Second, waking. Jesus says, in reference to the thief that comes in the night, therefore wake up. Or as Paul says it in Romans 13, for the time is at hand and the hour for you to waken from your sleep. Wakening is that metaphor that fits so well with this idea of a, of a military or political authority coming to visit your workplace. Get your house in order. The king is on his way. Waking is a, it's a moral metaphor. It's not simply a matter of looking to the sky. It's fixing, it's looking and repairing. I expect all of us know that feeling that when you've invited guests to your home, about five minutes out you look and you see the little piles of dust and books and receipts that you didn't get away. And it's that kind of attentiveness that wakening brings to mind for us or should bring into action. A friend of mine told me not long ago, a pastor in the Midwest, he said, I think, Ryan, that my church wants to be left alone. I think they want to get up in the morning and go to work and come home and heat up their dinner and turn on Jeopardy and Netflix and then get up tomorrow and do it again. I think they're simply tired. It is easy to live life asleep in the world, to kind of be droned into mindlessness by the rhythms and the difficulties and the struggles of life. And so Advent and Lent are these two seasons where we remember that we've drifted off to sleep, that we've forgotten that the Lord is King and that he is coming again, and that he wants us to be awake in the world. I read a theologian today who said, it is for us a time to remember that we are the church who dwell in the light that will soon flood the world. To be awake is to be those people in a dark and lonely world. Wake up. It is time for us to awaken from our sleep, to be a 
attentive to the Lord and his coming in the way that we live. We're gathering people. We are an awakening people and we are a loving people. Owe nothing to anyone, Paul says, except to love one another. For these commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, are summed up in this commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Such a, pitiful, a pivotal move, pivotal move, that Paul makes there to sum up the law as he does in 1 Corinthians 13. Now abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. We remember in this Advent season that we engage one another in the world in love. But I have to say at this moment that that love needs to be redescribed. Just as the word evangelical has lost its sense, so has love. If you know kind of the history of moral development in the last century, there was a rising in the 1960s and 70s of writers within the church who argued that love was primarily a sentiment. We need to love people. That means feel good about the way we treat people. And it rose very specifically in response to the sexual revolution. This theme arose from that time, love and do as you please. As long as it's sanctified by love, it's okay. Because love's just that good feeling that we all have. It's a really, really distinct move, isn't it? That love doesn't have any moral teeth anymore. It's about that feeling good about how I treat one another. It's primarily a sentimental thing. But it's not to that kind of love that the nations are drawn in Isaiah. For when they come flooding to the mountain of the Lord, what do they say? Teach us to walk in your ways and keep your paths. For they shall come to that Mount Zion, the mountain of the law of the Lord. It is to his justice, it is to his ordering of the world that the nations are drawn. To a love that builds up societies, that makes them whole and pure and right. Paul so, virely, so clearly goes on to define that love as one not that's against the law, but that upholds the law. Not sexual immorality, not divorce, not coveting. Love sums up the law, uses a mathematical metaphor. Love goes beyond the law. To be a people who gather before the Lord and to be wakeful in love is to be a morally discerning people at work in the world. Let me just offer you a couple of examples of the labor of love that's required of us and the intellectual kinds of effort that must are demanded of us. We must, I suggest to you, love a woman who is pregnant. We must also love the child who is within her. And if we are going to do that, it cannot be mere sentiment. It's going to have to be some really hard, social, personal, pastoral thought. It will require a love that has teeth. It will require a love that has patience. It will require a love that has understanding. The love to which we're called back is not the love we inherited from the 60s. This is a meaty and tender and hard-working love. Read today of Haiti or of Somalia or of Afghanistan or of Iran or you 
Bangladesh or around the world, we have places of poverty and of need and of injustice. And just down the road, we have a massive drug overdose population and we have nursing homes within a mile or two of us where people will die alone. A love that is pure sentiment can't engage those things. This is why Lent is such a wakeful time. The motto of love fits so well with waking, doesn't it? Because if we're going to be the Lord's light in the world, we're going to have to get to work. To reflect on where I might put my limited efforts to the healing of the world. That I might love in a way that builds up my neighbor, that heals those broken places. And love will put us to work in community together. Gathering, waking, and loving. I call us to that renewal of our life as a church in the weeks ahead. And if I could offer you a practical exercise to help you, to help me, is to put a candle on your table. And you may like us, or you may have been an Anglican for a while, and you know the trend. You've got a nice little four-candle set up with a candle in the middle, and you light these candles on each week. We can send you readings for that. But it's very simple to find one candle and put it at your table. And to light it with your family and to think about gathering and waking and loving and read a psalm. And remember this life that God is calling us to in Advent in the weeks ahead. And may he be our help and our aid. May he work within us to be a church who comes to be again his light in the world as we await his coming again in glory. Amen.